Hello. John. Dan. Is it you? Hello. Is it still you? I am still me, mostly. <laughs> Good. How about you? Are you still you? Yeah, everything seems everything seems fine. Uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. okay, good. So. I feel like that's, uh, you know, if you keep your expectations low, yeah, then you're not going to be disappointed. No. Mm-hmm. How's your quarantine? You uh, you still enjoying it? Still, still, yes, uh, I mean, it's the, still it's the, the best same. years of your life? Yeah, it's the same, um, really, no different for me, doing the same thing. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm privileged in that I can do the work that I need to do from mostly anywhere and, you know, without too much trouble. Maybe I'm using a different microphone sometimes, but the, it's it's pretty good. I mean, it's pretty good. And, you know, the I would say things have slowed down a little bit on the like the sponsor side, but I think it's more pushed out till later in the year. But it was interesting the kind of reaction that I saw in the podcasting community, both in for podcasters, as well as listeners, as well as advertisers. At first, I was fairly encouraged thinking that, well, people will have so much more time now, they'll be listening more. And instead of being in an office, they'll be replacing this sort of idle chatter that you might get in an office with podcasts since they'll be alone in their homes, in their apartments, whatever, they'll listen more. Right. And maybe that's true in some cases, but I also think what's true and maybe happening more is that the people who were filling their commute time with podcasts now no longer have that commute time. And so instead they're not listening to the podcasts. They might still be downloading them, but they're not listening to them in the same way that they were because now they can do other things. And I actually think those other things in a lot of cases for people are things like YouTube because what what makes a podcast wonderful that you all of us know is that you can listen to it while you're doing other things, while you're driving, while you're mowing the yard, if you've got good headphones on, while you're cooking, while you're working out, while you're on a walk, whatever. You can't really do that with the, I mean, you can listen to a YouTube kind of, but a lot of YouTube stuff, you want to, you want to see it. But now those people, I think they're at home and they don't have their hour to two. I mean, there's a lot of people who have in a day, they're in, they're in two hours in their car driving to and from their job or whatever. And that could be, that could be one of our podcasts or it could be two, three, four podcasts even during that time. And I think that in, they're not saying, well, normally I'd be driving and listening to the shows. I'm just going to listen to them now at my desk. I think instead they're just not listening to them and they're doing other things. Maybe they're being with their family or if they're alone, they're watching TV or watching a YouTube or doing something else. And I don't know that as many people are listening, but I subscribe to a couple newsletters that talk about that, that type of thing. Yeah. Tell me more. Well, every single podcast hosting company has a completely different story. One company will say, we're up 53% since the coronavirus thing and people are listening like crazy. And then someone else will be like, we've seen a 40% drop in our downloads. You know, like it, it, there's zero consistency at all. And there seems to be zero consistency in what the predictions are for it too. But it's interesting to me that so many companies 
even companies that you would think wouldn't really be affected by whether or not their coronavirus was happening or whether there were lockdowns or not are just being fiscally conservative and moving out to Q3, Q4, things like that. We've had a bunch of sponsors do that. So I'm not really sure why they have that reaction, but that's the one that a lot of companies have had. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's everybody's so timid. Also, people are liars. In, in about what? In what way? Well, I, mean, I, I agree with you, but how so? You know, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the entire podcast economy is still like 80% in shadow, it seems like. Mm -hmm. um, just in the sense that, it, you know, uh, how listenership is determined and then who has access to that information and then what, you know, what that ends up, um, how that gets translated into business you know in the in the early days of podcasting when we were just selling ads for ourselves it was pretty clear clear cut you would reach out to a sponsor or they would reach out to you and you'd say we have this many downloads how about this much money and yeah. they'd say fine yep and then all those intermediaries got involved and the money was like half and then half again and then half again and uh i don't you know when i think about the music business, it's the same, right? You don't know how many albums uh, your favorite band sold. You, They'll tell you when the record goes gold, and mm -hmm. they'll tell you when it goes platinum, and they talk about sales in those moments. But you can't, as a as a pedestrian, as a as a regular person, access how many records your your band your favorite band has sold. And you can't know how many of those records were bought by the label on opening day just to put the record in the charts. And I mean, there's even though the payola years have, uh, you know, all that was made illegal. Yeah. But it's still so shady. And part of a part of it, I guess, is just that it's so easy. So much of media is built around the idea that people are going to want to listen to a thing that's popular. They want to know it's popular before they listen to it. And they don't want to listen to something that they, that other people don't already like. And so gaming, gaming the optics to make a thing seem popular, seem like it's a big deal is what 20, 50% of, of the entertainment business. Yeah. Uh, we do know it's curious because we do know what the opening week receipts for films are. They, they talk about that very candidly. And I guess that's just an industry wide thing that is grandfathered in from the dawn of time. Like right. at the end of that first week, you know how many tickets were sold and that, that really matters, right? If your film is on the charts. Um, but in the music business, you, They'll talk about, yeah, they'll talk about like first week sales, second week sales, because they're talking about the charts. You're going to get on the charts, but it, but as soon as you're not, you know, in that first couple of weeks, boy, it just, it fades into total invisibility Wow! because that's where the, you know, that's where people are really collecting money. 
that's where the business people are collecting money. So they want to make it hard to audit. And, um, yeah, I mean, I have four podcasts. And honestly, Dan, when people talk about the numbers of downloads and the number of people listening, it feels like those numbers have stabilized mm-hmm. in the sense that I hear the same numbers from multiple sources, mm-hmm. but it didn't used to be, right? You talk to somebody and they're like, oh, yeah, this show's got 50,000 downloads. <laughs> and then the next person be like, your show's got 35,000 downloads. Right, it's like, right, well, how, right. where are these numbers coming from? Like, how do you, neither one of you sound reliable. But I, my experience has been since Corona, which I guess is what I'm calling it today. I've yeah. n- I have never said since Corona yet, but I just said it. Yeah, so I guess did. it's canon. It has been said. It is um, in the record books. I'm not going to start referring to this as a, po- as a pod. No, and that, say. Would, that would end it in the show immediately <laughs> if you did. But, uh, but just, you know... Um, just a casual survey, at least to me, seems like people aren't listening to the show that used to when they commuted. And that was like a, that was their, their sanctum santorum yeah. time. And, uh, and as much as they hated their commute, they had, they'd figured out a way to fill it with, to populate that time with one of their right, favorite things. To make it, to make it tolerable, to make it more right. tolerable. Yeah. And so I don't, I think I'm grateful that people aren't commuting. I think it's I think it's in the in the end a net positive unless I can imagine a person who does not enjoy their home. There's so many people that don't really enjoy their home. Mm-hmm. Generally because there are other people there that they don't like or that for some other reason their home is a stressful environment. And it's there are also an awful lot of people that don't enjoy their work. They don't like the work and they don't like the people that they work with or, so, or it's a stressful environment. And there's got to be a subclass of people. And I imagine given how many people there are in the world that don't really feel relaxed in their home and don't like their work, there's got, th- this subclass has to be a measurable group of people that feel like being in their car like the is, car is like their their one place that they have. That's kind of their favorite place in the yeah, day, right? Yeah. They get in their car and for however long, for you know, for the hour it takes them to get to work, nobody's yelling at them and they can listen to their music or their podcasts or whatever, and they're just like they're they're on their they're on their own and they're they're in this safe, groovy place that they like. Then they get to work and they're like, Ugh, God, I gotta go in. And then at the end of the day, you know, it's the same thing. So for those people, for the subclass of people that prefer to be in their cars and hate every other aspect mm-hmm. of their uh, life, I really hope that there is a return to some kind of, at least, if not normalcy, at least an opportunity for you to get back in your car because <laughs> I get it, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think, you know, but I think there's a lot of people who, you, and you can tell like that, like, people who find their car is like their most intimate personal space. And you can always tell people, you can tell whether people are in their car because they, and and whether they're enjoying it or whether they're just trying to get from a to B. Like, I'm not going to say I don't enjoy driving, 
but I would never drive if I could just be where I wanted to be. Like if we had a, a telepod I could step into and just, you know, press a button and now I'm, I'm, I'm at, at the office or I'm at your house or I'm you know, wherever, like I'm not interested in driving. And if I was interested in driving, it would be fun driving, like going and mudding in the truck or something like that. It's not, it's not like driving on the, the highway. I don't want to do that. Really, you don't you, driving on the highway isn't. Uh, and no. I'm not talking about like highway no. in the town, but like if somebody said, "Hey, Dan, you got to drive to Oklahoma City." Nah, I'd never get in a car again if I didn't have to. So I do like long drives, like running errands in a car. It's just, ah, uh, I don't like it at all. And that's the kind of thing my mom and dad. And sister all love. They love to just run a quick errand. Love and sister. No, not a quick errand. If you gave them a list of 15 things and they were spread out all over town, we're like, hey, we need to get these 15 things. They just love being in their cars. They just love driving around in their cars with the stereo on and just doing stuff. Yeah, just no being busy. You. Busy, busy, busy. Bop, bop, I, bop, I can bop. be busy without ever touching a car. When when we were working on my mom's house, she would go to the hardware store sometimes five times in a day. No. Oh, I need no, that. No. Oh, we forgot to get that. I'll go back to the hardware store. Ugh. And for me, I'm like, I've been to the hardware store today. Right. That's you, like, th- that's a project ending mistake, not getting what you need from them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you no, know what? We need that washer to install <laughs> the sink. Well, I guess we're not installing the sink today. Yep. Right back to the store. But for me to get in a car and drive for eight straight hours across a wide open American landscape, if you gave me any excuse to do it, that seemed like a, re, a like a valid excuse. If you said, "Hey, we need you to go to uh, we need you to go to Missoula to pick up this uh, little box that's got special coins in it, bring it back," I'd be like, "Right on." I mean, I'd get in the car immediately after this show was over and start driving to missoula because i just love that get the car up to speed get it out on the open road and just watch the yellow line that yellow dotted line dan just Mm -hmm. whizzing under your tires i mean i don't i don't mind that but it's not it's not like something i would choose to do if i'm if i'm there i'm there for it like i've done a lot of cross not as much as you but i mean i've done a lot of cross-country drives and long drives and i'm fine with it when we lived in north carolina i would Love the opportunity to say, oh, we we're going to go visit family in Florida. Cool. That's like a, you know, a 10 hour drive. It's nothing. I wouldn't even stop. I wouldn't even stop. Right. You know, I love that. But like, would I pick to do that? Would I want to do that instead of getting there without it? No, I don't. I don't it's not like an activity I like. I can get into it. And that's, I think, the difference is like, if I'm doing it, then I'll do it and I'll enjoy it. But it's not something I would pick to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We never talked about that car. Speaking of cars, uh, the, uh, well, I was driving uh, a couple weeks ago and this, um, the, one of the most amazing vehicles that I'd ever seen was driving kind of behind me. And I pulled up to the light and uh, the woman driving the vehicle pulled up next to me and I'm looking at this. I'm like, I love this, this car. This is amazing. It's not a car. And I was just looking at this thing and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try and get some pictures of this. I don't care. Uh-huh. So I, I brought the phone up and I start 
And immediately the woman driving the car looks over at me and smiles. And she's cool lady. She's, I would guess like mid late thirties, sandy blonde hair, you know, sunglasses on. She's got a, like a wakeboard in the back. And, and this, this vehicle was so cool. And I, I smiled at her and I said, uh, I said, sorry, I don't mean to be creepy. I'm obsessed with your, your car. And she says, Oh, take all the pictures you want. And I said, what is this thing? And so I took some pictures and I sent it to you and you got very, very close to identifying exactly what the vehicle was. The only thing you got wrong was the year and not by much. I was very impressed. This vehicle is called an international, uh, why don't you say? Why don't you say what it is? I don't want to take away the, your thunder because you correctly identified. <laughs> I'm not sure it's my thunder, but what you uh, what you saw was an International Scout Two. Yes, International Scout Two, uh, which is yeah, uh, one of the great classic little little Jeeps. It's a little. If you're a person, there are people in the world that use the word Jeep to mean any little capable four by four truck. Like saying, Oh, can I have some Coke? And they're actually pouring you a Pepsi or a root beer or something. Yeah. So if you were, if you were that kind of person and there are those people that I have, I've had those people in my life Mm -hmm. who would say, Oh, that's just like a great little Jeep. Um, that is effectively what it is. The international harvester company made a little competitor to the Jeep um, and the, it's one of those trucks. The Scout is one of those trucks that was made sort of unchanged for like 20 years. Yeah. This thing, I had no idea about the history. I knew that I had seen them around on the roads and I always thought they were cool. And I had sort of made a mental note to like, one day I got to find out what that thing is. But she told me and, and she, she told me what it was. She says it's, you know, it's an international scout, harvester scout. She said it's uh, 1978. You would guess 72 or three from the photo, but I'm not taking any points off for that. Yeah. But what's so cool about it is that she had some of these. So they kind of can sort of be like a pickup truck because the, the back part of it can pop off and can come off. So she had that off and she had a pickup truck. So there was no roof on the thing. The back is open like a truck and the windshield folds down forward. So you don't even have a windshield if you don't want it. It's just so a little cool, baby. It's blue. a little Jeep. Little Jeep. So cool. I loved it. Now, I'm not sure in the 78 whether the windshield still folds down. Did she, did hers have a folded? Was it, her windshield actually folded down? It was not folded down. She had it up and I wasn't, I didn't get a good enough look at the time to see if it folded down or not. But I'm pretty sure that by that point, because I did do some reading on this that that day, and it it seems like you couldn't fold it down at that point. That was maybe a a 60s thing where they were doing that. It was a, that that was a thing that they, uh, yeah, I don't think, I don't think in 78, because 78 was real, real close to the end of those little trucks. Yeah. They didn't go much further. But you know what you're, what you're seeing that, that removable hard top, you know, that's a thing that um, the Chevy Blazer was able to do for many years. That's so cool. And then the Blazer, a lot of the trucks like the Blazer and the Bronco, sometime in the late 70s, mid mid to late 70s, they made it so that you could take the back off, but you <laughs> couldn't take the whole top off. 
right? Like the, the doors, the, the, the metal frame of the window remained for a while. There was a roll bar and then they just put a roof over the driver that was not removable. And so those trucks that you can take the whole top off, which are blazers up until about 76, 77, I think, and Broncos until 78. And these travel, these little scouts um, and Jeeps, Jeeps, you could always do it. Although modern Jeeps, you take the top off and the doors still have frames. You don't. Right. Uh, I me, was just looking at that the other day and you can see the, the, the joints and braces and things where the doors would fit. And as opposed to that look of just, there were never any doors here and it shouldn't look like there are any doors. I didn't like that. I just saw that yesterday, actually. Yeah. Things aren't as cool as they used to be. Is no, the problem. They're, they're not. <clears throat> things are just, you know, I was, I was reading a thread. Um, <laughs> nice lingo. Uh, I was reading the thread <laughs> that's on a, I, I follow, so I don't go on Facebook that much, but I do go there now because there are a couple of, uh, there are finally a couple of places to go. And one of them is the, uh, the Gary's van yes. group. And I go, I don't, <clears throat> I don't like to meddle with them very much, but I, you know, I go see what people are saying. Cause it's, because the whole point of it was that there'd be interesting conversations there. And there's an <clears throat> an omnibus Facebook group that's very active that I kind of keep tabs on a little bit. It feels voyeuristic, so I don't I don't go there like religiously. And there's a friendly fire group that's there that's also very active. So there's stuff for me to go. So there are di- you're saying that there are different Facebook groups for each of the different shows you do. However, Roderick on the line and this show are are just in all in one group. Yeah, glommed together into why Gary's thing. Why do you think that is? It is because these two shows have more in common than Friendly Fire and Omnibus have in common. Yes, I think it's that. I think that Roadwork listeners and Roderick on the line listeners are shyer to get together. I think once they do get together, they forge close bonds. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people listening to this show that would would rather not be invited to a group event. Right. Um, and I think these shows are personal. I, this one and Roderick on the line. I think, I think if Merlin had been more uh, oriented toward uh, publicity and promotion and um, and just you know basically like allowing a fan group to to exist. Right. Um, I think that Roderick on the, or if Facebook had been, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure where a Roderick on the line fan group would have thrived starting in 2011 or whenever the show started, uh, because Facebook wasn't that place yet. And Reddit wasn't, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that group would have been, but by the time, Gary's van came along. I think you know, I feel like maybe a little bit of that moment had passed in terms of people really, really wanting to talk about episodes. And I feel like a lot of the Gary's van people are roadwork listeners. And I think there are an awful lot. There's obviously a lot of crossover, but, um, but you know, they talk an awful lot about, 
roadwork stuff over there. Honestly, I don't know. I've 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 always wondered why Roderick on the line and roadwork uh, are what they are. Um, how am I how to how to put that? I I'm not sure. I'm not sure the role that podcasts play in people's lives. Friendly Fire and Omnibus are both tailored for a wider audience you don't have to i mean there are plenty of people that listen to friendly fire that don't even like me i mean that hate me (laughs) how is that oh they just you know they're fans of ben and adam's star trek show and they ended up over there and they like the premise they're there for the the other people and uh and and maybe Maybe they've sorry. Maybe they've grown to to hate you in some way. Yeah, they just wish I would stop talking and let Adam and Ben make dick and fart jokes, which is what they, which is what they're there for, you know. Um. But yeah, beats. I mean, honestly, beats me why um why these two shows have such a ah. Have a have a, a fan community that that is sort of uniquely what it is. When I had that meetup uh, before the Western State Hurricane show, everybody there it seemed like was well. It was it was it was from Gary's van is where the meetup came from. Right. So, um, you know, and that was a a large and varied group of people. They just, I, I, they don't seem like they're Facebook people. Maybe I, who knows? Like they're but reluctantly they, on Facebook just so that they can get access to the the show. Sort of, yeah. Hard. I mean, hard to, hard, to, hard to say. Really, I mean, and especially like our Patreon supporters and our bonus content consumers. Yeah, that is a, that's a a very uh, intense, tight knit group who like talking to each other yeah, and who have a lot to talk about. So I think that's why they were so excited about the potential, you know, dinner, the sit down, the sit down yeah, dinner yeah, that yeah, you, but, we were going to do. Um, but the group that I'm on, on Facebook, that is the most active, the largest and um, just the churningest group is a Facebook group called So You Grew Up in Anchorage. <laughs> and any post will have 500 comments. And 89% of the website or of the uh, of the group is boomers and old generation Xers saying who remembers when the Montgomery Ward on Northern Lights had a, a nickel-powered rocket ship out front that you could ride and a guy in a clown outfit would give you a lollipop? And then there's 500 comments like, I remember that. That guy's name was Morris, you know, Minkelstein. And, oh, that Montgomery Ward is where I got my first pair of dungarees. And... Just like this, and and probably twenty percent of the comments all say exactly the same thing. If somebody asks a question like "Where was the Montgomery Ward?", you'll get two hundred and fifty people all saying "On Northern Lights, On Northern Lights," because that none of they all post before they read the right, other. Right, no one's like 
reading or no one's reading or waiting or anything like that. They're all just right. jumping right in. Right. They're Facebook boomers and they every time they see something, they think that person is asking them that question directly. Uh, like it's a this is a personal website for them. And so it's so it's in a lot of ways it's awful. It's the equivalent of those emails you used to get from your dad or your granddad that had all those all that those eight bit graphics in it oh, and yeah. the cor- the corniest jokes in the world about how getting old is isn't for sissies or whatever you know all that stuff. I got one of those the other day and I couldn't believe it. It felt like it had been it had been circulating in the gyre of the internet for twenty years or something in it, and it finally landed in my inbox. I almost saved it because I thought maybe it was a super clever joke, but in reading it, it just seemed like one of those emails where where it was like a joke after joke after joke, but the, but it. It felt like a thread almost. I don't know. Mm. I can't. I, I hope someone one day does a, um, like an oral history of those, of those, those dad emails. Yeah. But I was on, I, so I go on this uh, Anchorage, so you grew up in Anchorage website because I like that stuff. Like, oh, that building, whatever happened to that building? I love that. Or, oh, wow, you know. Like the Manny's taco wagon, like, oh, that used to that guy was great. Or the, there was a guy that stood downtown on a street corner and waved at every car that was a fixture for a long time. And um, there was a, there were there was this out at the Aklutna Indian Reservation, they're up on the bluff above the highway. Um, guys from the reservation had brought couches and chairs out and set them up on the bluff. And when you drove down the highway, there would sometimes be like eight or 10 guys sitting up there on these couches. They weren't like benches. They were upholstered couches that sat out there all year, all through the winter, covered with snow. Then when the thaw would come, and maybe it was a different, maybe every year they brought a new couch out there. I don't think so though. But there'd be eight or ten guys sitting up there on these couches and lazy boy chairs watching the traffic go by. And if you waved at them or honked, mm-hmm. they'd wave. Mm-hmm. And it was at a time, I think, when there was a lot less traffic on the roads. Right. So, you, you know, you could drive by and you'd be the only car they'd seen in whatever, a minute or 30 seconds. But they'd wave. They'd wave, wave every time. And they were just – they became – almost a um like a geological fixture you know it was like uh, you could give directions to somebody like oh go up you know when you see the guys on the couches take the next exit uh and it's stuff like that that doesn't exist anymore that you would forget about if it weren't for a facebook page that called so you grew up in anchorage where right. everybody's posting this right thing. sure but somebody posted a picture yesterday uh, of a poster that I actually had in my room. And it was a picture taken by an Anchorage photographer named, I think, Myron Rosenberg. He was Anchorage, and I think this is true of the 70s and 80s, like posters were a big uh, art form or, or, a, or a home decorating form. And so there were a lot of posters in the world and Anchorage had a lot of its own local posters, posters that were 
local pride. And I think probably a lot of places did. Did you have like posters on your wall of, of Philadelphia things? No. I mean, I had a, you know, I had posters and like, you know, guys in the Van Eagles Halen. and, 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 and Phillies. And yeah, I mean, Van Halen, of course, who didn't. Right. Right. And then the picture of, um, Christy Brinkley with the Ferrari from National Lampoon's Vacation. Sure. You know, that kind of stuff. I never had the Kelly LeBrock one from Weird Science. I think I was, you know, I mean, I in retrospect, I should have. Weird Science, boo-boop. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever Alaska. meet Danny Elfman? You, you know him? No, I'd love to meet Danny Elfman. He's a super cool dude, isn't he? I wish I could meet him. Yeah. Smart guy and has done a lot of wonderful things. Alaska had so much that was unique to it. Um, in the seventies, it was still far enough away. Like we had our own beer, Prinsbrow, and we had our own. Um, I don't know. It was just its own culture, right? And there were a lo- there there was a there were a couple of different photographers that every year would take a picture of Anchorage from a different sort of airborne perspective right they'd go up in a small plane they'd find a great shot of anchorage and you could see the mountains in the background and you could see all the the latest buildings that had been built and then it'd be a high resolution photograph so you know you could kind of see where your house was you could you could put a little you know put a little marker on like well that's our house because they would be a big big panorama and then they would sell these posters and everyone would have one like Every year, you'd get a new poster of the city of Anchorage. It was. Would you put that up? I mean, was that a thing? Oh you yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I had, I had a couple of them up, but this picture that was posted on "So You Grew Up in Anchorage" was a picture of a bunch of hot air balloons all inflating midwinter for rendezvous time, all starting to inflate, and and it's actually happening on the football field of my high school. You can't see my high school in the picture, but you can see my mom's office right behind it because my mom's office at Alaska Pipeline was right next door to my high school. It was the next building over. We would like to say thank you very much to ExpressVPN. So we all know how ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But there's something that you might not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. What? It's true. So many of us are stuck at home, right? Like that's just what's going on right now. And it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. So this whole last week, I've been using ExpressVPN to binge Star Trek Discovery using the UK Netflix. That's right. You can watch all of these really cool shows that maybe aren't available in the country that you might be standing in right now. And it's so easy to do. You just fire up ExpressVPN app. I change my location to the UK. I refresh Netflix. And guess what? All of the UK Netflix shows show up now. It's amazing. And that doesn't just work with Netflix. It works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. You can watch pretty much anything that you want because ExpressVPN sends all your traffic through whatever node that you choose and it basically makes it appear that you are in that country. It's very cool and there are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason that I like ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it's so fast. There's no buffering. There's no lag. You can stream in HD, no problem. 
and it'll work on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, obviously your computer, and so much more. So we have a special link for you guys. It's ExpressVPN, and that's just spelled Express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, expressvpn.com slash roadwork. You go there, you will get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So hang on a second. It's free for three months and you're supporting the show, and you can watch what you want, and protect yourself, all the security stuff that comes with a VPN, kind of a no-brainer, and shame on you if you uh, if you don't get this while it lasts. ExpressVPN.com slash roadwork. Thanks very much to them for making this show possible. So you can see my mom's office, and you can see these balloons, and it's, you know, the snow-covered ground, and these balloons are just these fantastic rainbow hot air balloons all every kind of shape and color all every kind of shape as long as round is as long as round is funny that's the <laughs> they all have the same shape there weren't any it's not like they were they were uh shaped like garfield or whatever you know they were all hot air balloon shape but but rainbows and all kinds of they're beautiful things and it, and i was shocked at the memory, because when I was a kid in Anchorage, hot air balloons were in the sky all the time, all year long, even when it was freezing cold in the winter, you would look up and see, you know, 15 hot air balloons, you know, in the far distance or right over your head. And then in the summer, they were up all the time too. Hot air balloons. Hot air ballooning was a sport and a like a tourist attraction and uh, just like a like a fixture on the landscape. One <clears throat> one night we were sitting in the in our dining room and we heard the telltale sound of a hot air balloon, which is that sound of the of the like the propane burner. Right, right, right. That's so cool. And we heard this sound, you know, and it was kind of like evening, 8 p.m. And it got louder and louder. And we were like, what is going on? And we run outside and there's a hot air balloon. We lived right next to a lake. There's a hot air balloon that's coming down in the lake. Like it's, it drops down and the, and they're, you know, hitting the gas and the basket touches the lake water at, with this, you know, with the burner full on. And somehow they get enough lift that they lift off. Now, at the time, I thought it was a narrowly averted crash. But then later, I wondered whether or not it was a stunt. Like the pilot was... Um, was like I'm going to touch the basket onto the lake, but it was a small lake, and and you can't steer a hot air balloon. That's the thing, right? So he couldn't have set out to do it. It what might have been he, a crime I mean, of opportunity. He, he t- went, dropped down, touched the basket on the on the lake, and then they flew off. <laughs> I don't see how you could have. It, that would be a real stunt to pull off because oh, yeah. the balloon's just moving on its own, right? It's just floating around. But, but looking at these pictures, I was suddenly struck by the insanity of it because you could not possibly launch 15 hot air balloons around the city of Seattle and just have them float around and maybe they're going to float 
into the ocean. Maybe they're going to float into a building or into the airport traffic. Like, they're just floating. And for it to have been a, a year-round sport in Alaska for for much of my childhood – I mean, Anchorage is a city surrounded by water and mountains, and I guess their I guess their their only strategy or their only steering is if it looks like you're going to float out over the ocean, you dump gas and just go down as fast as you can. You right, know, like get, right. go down to earth is your only um, that's your only maneuver. If you're blowing into the mountains, go down to earth. Mm-hmm. But then they stopped. There was a day when there were balloons all everywhere in the sky, and then there was a day where they were never there again. Why? Well, that was the thing about this Anchorage. So you grew up in Anchorage website because the person who posted that poster, which is a great poster that that did hang on my in, in on my bedroom wall. Um, they said in their little caption, like, why don't, why don't we ever see balloons anymore? We used to see them all the time. And then 500 people commented insurance, insurance, Mm. insurance, insurance. It's because of insurance, the insurance, it's the, it's the insurance like over and over and over hilarious. But then I realized, of course it was the insurance. And I think that's why you don't have cool trucks anymore where you can take the roof off yeah because insurance dan insurance has taken all the dangerous cool things out of life and replaced them either for i think i think for a long time replaced them with just flat uncool stuff and then when there was enough sentimentality that built up about the good old days when there was cool stuff People tried to reintroduce cool-ish things, but insurance made sure that the the cool thing was not that cool. You know, like the if you took the Plymouth Predator and you took off the 15-mile impact bumpers, it might even be a cool looking car am i am i talking about the am i talking about the plymouth predator or the yeah the plymouth predator i have to look at a picture of that one it's got these is this a newer newer one or an older one you want me to look at or is it the prowler it's the prowler the plymouth not the prowler not the yeah, predator the prowler shows up look at the prowler the plymouth prowler oh that thing that's right. sort of like reminiscent of the old style hot rod, like the ZZ Top mobile type it thing. Looks, yeah, it looks like a 32 Ford uh, or wishes it did. I don't like those. Well, I know, but now look at it and take those bumpers off the front. Yeah. Take it's those. Better without the bumpers for sure. And there's pictures better. of them without the bumpers, actually. Oh, really? Where yeah. do you see those? Uh, if you just look up images of a Plymouth Prowler, you can see that people ha- are apparently removing the bumpers because, yeah, the bumpers are ridiculous. Prowler. Ugh, that's a, oh, I'm sorry, John. That's a horrible car with even without the bumpers. That thing looks like a piece of crap. Well, it is a horrible car even without the bumpers, but, you know, if you take the bumpers off, 
It's a cooler looking it's a, car. It's a lipstick on a pig situation doing that. It's, it's a, still a piece of crap. I don't know. I feel like without <sighs> the bumpers, it becomes, it looks like a, an HR Geiger version of a, of an old hot rod, right? Like it, it, it becomes a little bit like alien versus predator. Maybe that's why I, doesn't it kind of look like if you look straight on, doesn't it kind of have a, a face like, like predator when you finally see the predator in the predator movie, yeah, I guess I it guess has I a little see face that. like a, like a Plymouth prowler sure. a little bit, but also it looks like the alien in aliens. <laughs> anyway, insurance, 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 insurance. Now I'm not against insurance, but what I want is to live in a world where there are balloons in the sky on a hot summer night or on a cold winter's day. How, how can I separate that desire from, from the kind of, so you grew up in Anchorage, weird boomer sentimentality about things. Like, I don't want to be somebody that doesn't get with the times and, and spends any time at all thinking about how great things used to be. But, but there aren't balloons in the sky and, and for someone to have never seen that, never look up and, and see like beautiful rainbow balloons fly by, it seems like a small, just like a small indignity, a small and unnecessary indignity. And, and, and partly it's because insurance is protecting whom? Like what's going to happen? What are those balloons going to do? If they crash... How many hot air balloon crashes were there? You know, where, what, three people died? Meh. Five people took their lives into their own hands and climbed into an unsteerable balloon. Or the balloon came down on some power lines and knocked out some power for a while. Like, what exactly, you know what it probably was, was they got in the way of airplanes. But even that, like an airplane. Like a small, like a Cessna type plane. Yeah, because a, a, a balloon would get down out of the sky if it went anywhere near a, 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 a big airport. But a little Cessna can fly around a freaking balloon. They're, they move so slowly. So it it does. It feels a little bit like... like who is a, a, hot, a hot air balloon going to take by surprise? That's not like an aviation hazard, you wouldn't think. No, they're like the... This is the... This is the I always wonder why Elon Musk doesn't have a dirigible. <laughs> because they're they're incredibly unsafe. Why is a dirigible unsafe? Because they're filled with uh, hydrogen and they burn enough. up. They burn up. The cover leads up in uh, one. No, Tell, tells no. you that story. No, they could. They still I'm fill sure. them. They still fill them up with that. They don't talk about it, but they still do. Elon Musk has got access to inert gas that are that probably are, are lighter even than hydrogen. They have an atomic number of one half. <laughs> but if you could, if you were a billionaire and were just looking for dumb things to do, I'm not. The thing is that <clears throat> I know why Bill Gates doesn't have a dirigible because Bill Gates is a conservative guy. He drives around in a Subaru Outback. He's not flashy. He doesn't want to let, he doesn't want to, to be a showy rich guy, but there are so many showy rich guys. 
who are like, check me out. You know, like I'm, I live in an undersea lair and I have a, and I'm stealing nuclear submarines from all the world powers. Why wouldn't one of those guys, one of those ding dong billionaires, the guy that started Snapchat. Yeah. Some young kid that decided what he was going to do was buy up all the available uh, real estate in Venice, California and make Venice an unlivable place. Venice, which had always been a scummy little hippie town until really recently. Venice was still just sort of like, why would you go down? Why would you go down to that carnival? And now it's the most expensive real estate in California because this kid went and bought up all the stupid little two-story, you know, balloon warehouses and turned them into Snapchat offices. Why doesn't that kid have a dirigible? And I'm talking about a giant one, like those, like those old U S Navy ones that had two different gondolas Mm -hmm. and like eight engines. You could just cruise the world. You wouldn't even have to cruise the world. You could just park that thing off of Catalina Island. I mean, what a great, what an inspiration you would be to people around the world. Like, here's what a billionaire looks like, like a crazy person. A billionaire by definition is a crazy person. The day your income goes over, the day your assets go over $1 billion, you long past the threshold of being a crazy person. Why don't they, why don't crazy people have more imagination? Why do they buy basketball teams? Why do they do such unimaginative Because they're bored. Because they're bored. Because they know know. that they need to spend the money. They're completely brain dead, unimaginative people. Almost everybody that I know who has become exceptionally wealthy, I'm talking about tens of millions of dollars. And I do know a handful of people who become wealthy for that. They they don't know what to do with the money, and I'm not saying that they go out and they buy like I've always wanted my own fire truck, and they go and buy a fire truck. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying they don't spend it at all. They don't do anything. It's not that they're they don't donate it. They're not contributing it to people in need. They just literally they have it and they continue to live in the same little house that they're in, not because they say, well, this is enough for me, and I I'd rather you know do some humanitarian things with my philanthropy. No, they don't do that either. They just don't know what to do, so they think that they think that they uh, they they need to do something. Well, I always liked uh, a sport, didn't I? What sport did I like again? It was oh right, it was basketball. I'll I'll buy a basketball team, then I can go to the basketball game, and it'll look like I I know what I'm doing. It'll look yeah. like I have an idea about what the rest of the world does. Uh, people like sports, I'm told, and and so that means I should like a sport. But because I like it, I just, I want really good seats, right? Don't you want good seats at a, in a game? Mm. Isn't that what people do? So how do you guarantee a good seat? Well, I could buy a box seats. No, I'll just buy the team. I'll buy the team and then everyone will like me because they'll have to. And that's what I've always wanted is for everyone to like me. So I'll use my money to make everyone like me. But then I'll complain about the stadium and I'll say we're going to have to move the team to another and then everyone will hate me. So no, that won't work. I'll just buy the team and leave it where it is. And that's what they do. And then they, that's the idiocy. People who wind up with that much money through some kind of technology, they've built a technology thing you can guarantee that they don't know what to do with the money. They don't know what to do with it. I would do so, so many amazing things. If I had just a tiny little fraction of that money, 
I mean, first of all, you'd never hear from me again because I would never be on social media or podcast ever again. Mm. Uh, I would, I'd be too busy doing things in the world. But these what people just stay, they do? stay living in their little, they stay living in the same house. You know, like they might, they might buy a Tesla. Yeah. And that's it. That's all the people do. And it's, uh, it's infuriating to me. It's infuriating. I, I knew a guy uh, in San Francisco who had invented, oh, he was uh, one of the guys that invented Quora, or, but he also was doing other stuff. You know, like a lot of techie McTechersons, they mm-hmm. do a thing and then they go do another thing and they do another thing. And he had, he had invented these things and he had all this money and he bought a McLaren. Mm. But he lived in a one-bedroom apartment, I think, like, um, you know, one of these, like, tech, guy apartments where there were there was no art on the walls and so and it was not you know he's just like he lived there because he was he had a utilitarian mind and didn't need more so he just had this one bedroom apartment and a mclaren that he never drove because he wasn't really a very good driver or interested in driving but he bought a mclaren because because it was a car he had a poster of when he was a kid or something, or or I don't know why. I have no idea. The McLaren. It just sat there. This this car that's not a very practical car, and uh, but an expensive one. Mm-hmm. But Dan, what would you do? Why do do you think that if you became wealthy, you would become more conservative, or do you think you would go? Do you think you would um, go off your rocker? Would you buy something cool? What would you do? I don't want I don't want you to like unmask your your special New Zealand bunker house. But like what uh what direction would your life take? Uh how much money do I have? <sighs> enough to not work again or enough yeah, for my kids to not work. 300 million dollars. Oh. I mean, I have such a long we we don't have enough time to go mm-hmm. over this. But I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the first thing I would do is like, literally no one would ever see you here for me again. Right. Gone. Ever. But, yeah. but would you be in America still? No, you would be out of America. Yeah. Because I can't buy enough land here. Oh, you would go to a, you would go to a place where you could buy yourself a, a small country worth of real estate. Have you ever been to tell you ride? Yes. <laughs> I, I love tell you ride. Oh, you do. I do. And um, it's in Colorado. Yes, it is. I'm switching. Did you notice? Colorado. Oh, Colorado. Okay. Yeah. Instead Not of Colorado. Col- no, because you say Colorado, so I've switched. Colorado. I was talking to some friends about this uh, recently. Um, that I'm switching now. Oh, what, what, did the, what did your friends have to say about Colorado, Colorado? And they're all Colorado, like regular people, but I feel like I need an affectation. I see Colorado. Yes. Right on. Um, and, and I was trying to figure out what, where that pronunciation actually came from Colorado, because it's not, I mean, in the Northeast is Colorado for sure. Is that a Pacific Northwest pronunciation? Is it an Alaskan pronunciation? Is it like a, a it almost sounds one of my friends, she, when she heard me talking about it that way, she said, it almost sounds like it's from Fargo. Like mm-hmm. a Minnesota kind of pronunciation. So, do you know Minnesota. where that? Yeah, do you know where that comes from? Colorado, Colorado. Uh, you know, Alaska. So my my uh, accent, although I don't have an accent, mm. my I I speak flawless, unaccented English. 
and in some ways I think you could make a case and I and I have and I will now mm-hmm. make a case for the <laughs> fact that Pacific Northwest American English is the accentless the most accentless or accently accentless less as accentless as <laughs> uh, accent of all spoken English because as English has has traveled away from the received pronunciation world mm-hmm. of uh, of the queen yeah it has traveled the furthest when it reaches the Pacific Northwest and let me explain because obviously they speak English in Australia and New Zealand, which are much further away, but they were colonies for much longer. So psychologically it has traveled the furthest. It has been away from the mother tongue, the longest, both in time and distance for it to have arrived in Seattle. And then ultimately in Alaska where it has been honed to its diamond-like perfection. (laughs) But I speak with a kind of, um, I have, I use a lot of dialect. You know, I, I have, um, I have a lot of found objects in my, in my language. Yeah. And I have a kind of. Are you saying uh, you, you're doing what I'm doing now and making an, an intentional switchover? Um, no, I don't. I don't do a lot of intentional language games and goofs. Um, I do. I I play with language a lot, but I don't. I don't say Colorado or Rado because I'm being difficult. I just say it. I say it how I say it. And a lot of that is influenced by the fact that my mom had a very strong Western Ohio accent and lexicon. And so she brought all this, you know, and, and depression era Western Ohio lexicon that had an awful lot of sort of like, put the iron in the far type of talk, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, uh, real country, but not Southern country, that kind of Midwestern uh, farm talk. And then my dad, of course, my dad was, his parents were both Victorians. And so they had all this crazy, like jazz age way of speaking, but their parents were born before the Civil War. So there was all this, additional kind of lexicon references language jokes and language play a kind of mid-atlantic clipped way of speaking that i'm very close to in terms of generations right that my dad spoke a lot of that stuff he made fun of it too so he was he was doing it um often Ironically, but but I wasn't, and most people weren't aware of the source material, so it was unclear what the comment he was making was on, you know, on on the Coney Island washboard or whatever. Um, and so I took all of that, both the original source material and the ironic commentary on it, and just assimilated it into the way I spoke. 
And then Alaska had such a huge uh, diversity of Americans. Like Sarah Palin talks the Fargo way because all of the people that immigrated to that part of Alaska were all farmers from Minnesota and ultimately like farmers from Norway that came directly to Alaska and started a very honest colony there that just, that's their native way of speaking. And a lot of them are third, fourth generation Alaskans. And they speak with that. So, you know, whole oh, hello there sort of weird Norway, uh, Minnesota voice. But then tons and tons of people came up during the oil years from Oklahoma and Arkansas, all these, Louisiana, all these like oil people. And then, of course, my uncle and his whole group of people were all Ivy League people that had come to Alaska to start the, to start a new country, basically. And all of that language was in play all the time. When you were in Anchorage, it was like the most icely cantina. <laughs> Everywhere you went, people were talking every which way. And there were very smart, educated people there. And there were really uneducated people. And, and everybody had money and, and, and seemed like they were, everybody was firing on all cylinders, right? And then, of course, there was a, the, the, even within the native Alaskans, there were five different, five completely different language traditions where the languages didn't really bear any resemblance to each other. You know, they weren't all, native Alaskans don't all speak uh, in the same language family. They're an awful lot of different um, peoples there. So I think at a certain point, I abandoned the idea that there was a, that I had to behave, that I had to really follow any one path. Mm -hmm. The only thing that made it, the only thing I did believe in was grammar. And I learned grammar well enough that I started to make grammar jokes in the way I spoke. And a lot of those grammar jokes became habits and like a lot of language habits after my grammar joke became a habit and became unconscious, it was no longer a grammar joke. It just sounded like bad grammar or it sounded like, um, like, like invented grammar, but I wasn't, I wasn't inventing it cause I didn't know what the grammar was. I had, I'd gone through this whole process of, of, of play of play language play that then became habitual and started to make me sound like an eccentric, um, mm. where my, you know, where my, I, I would use the, I would use the wrong vowel sound. <laughs> I would put the, the, uh, accent on the wrong syllable. Uh -huh. Um, I, you know, I would incorporate sort of w words from different languages, but, but either mispronounced or hyper pronounced all that stuff was all, it all started as a, 
as a game at some point. And then it became this um, eccentric way of speaking. And I can't even remember some of the origin stories of pronunciations. Like I, I call it Eugene, Oregon, and I do it. I've done it for so long. I don't remember. I think I originally did it to infuriate somebody. And that's, that was the point of a lot of language games was to infuriate people because people are so self-serious about language, right? And grammar. And, and I, I grew up in a, in an era as I'm sure you did where other kids were, you know, and this, I think it's probably still true. Kids learn grammar. And then the first thing they want to do is correct the people around them. Um, and kids, incompletely learn grammar and so it's the one of the funny charming things that kids do where they say um you said that wrong and then it turns out that the kid is wrong yeah because the kid learned one rule but didn't learn the the 15 other rules and so i love to antagonize people like that or infuriate them catch them catch them in so i would you know i it's not like i'm i was because this just sounds even twice as insufferable that you would be laying little mouse traps for people hoping that they're going to jump in and correct you and then it turns turns out I didn't do that for very long that was a very 7th grade thing but the but the I think during that period the like laying mouse traps for people I just realized sometimes the sometimes the wrong way is more elegant sometimes the wrong way just sounds more fun it doesn't sound better. It sounds more fun. And fun became like, why wouldn't you call it Eugene, Oregon? <laughs> and and the people that get mad, the people that are like, it's Eugene. And then to pretend not to understand them, to be like, Eugene? What? <laughs> I, that's what I said. No, Eugene. You, Eugene, what what are we? What's our disagreement? That's just I don't know. That's just so fun. But but it has it. But he became, but but I got habituated in playing that way, and now I feel like uh, I can't tell anymore. I can't tell anymore how many words are because I'm not dyslexic. I've just. I've made fun of words for so long that I don't even know what I'm doing half the time. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say a word. Also, it's the book learning thing, right? As a young kid, when you learn words from books, you sometimes put a extra syllable in. I heard, uh, I heard a woman say particular, particularly, particular, particularly, particularly. Mm-hmm. she said that word and I realized, and I don't know how to say it because I have said particularly and maybe it is particularly or maybe it's particular, particularly. What is it? I don't even know. I can't even get there particularly. And I don't think it is particularly. I think it's particular per- particularly. Is it particular? Particularly. But is that how per- people pronounce it? Or do they say particular, particularly? That's particularly. what I just said. Particularly. Yeah, that is what you said. Yeah. I heard someone pronounce it and I wondered whether I was saying it wrong and I couldn't even 
remember, as you're seeing, I can't even remember how it actually is pronounced because I often will put an extra vowel in words like that, but particularly. And so then I get, then I, then I'm not, I'm not sure and that comes from, from learning language from reading, right? right? Where you, you ghost over a word like that and you're like, I'm sure there's another T and I in there somewhere. So then particularly is a word that I am pronouncing correctly. Mm-hmm. But if you so. had, if you'd asked me at the beginning of this show, am I pronouncing that correctly? I wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, also because of that weird sort of hyperdiction thing that I do where I pronounce every syllable. Like I don't, I slur plenty, but there are words that I like hyper don't slur again as a, as a kind of like, and it might, it might have to do with song, right? Songwriting, mm-hmm. song singing. Right. Cause you can do, you can do whatever you want with pronunciation in a, in a song. You can, and the, and but 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 connecting language to song and realizing that speaking is singing, and singing in a, you know, singing your speech, in a way, or like I don't speak in my songs. I don't speak sing, but I do think it goes the other way. I think I think of certainly the writing when i write words i think of them as uh, uh, how they'll sound read aloud and i think i feel that way when i start to speak i worked a long time uh so that my my written voice and my speaking voice were the same that's interesting because i uh because when i first started writing i felt like my my written voice was so alien to me. I didn't like it. I would sit down and write a long thing and then I would read it. And I'm not talking about like school papers because school papers I wrote, I can read a a paper I wrote in college right now and identify with that person and feel like it's written well. But when I would write essays in my late teens, early twenties, the mannerisms of my writing were just, Ugh, excruciating, winsworthy. And it wasn't the way I talked. It took me a long time to get those two voices to be the same. And I think some of that process was that I started to speak in a, in a way that was a little um, writerly or conscious of what this would be like if it were written at the same time that I was trying to take all the, the strange mannerisms out of my writing and make it sound like I was speaking. Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty close to it. I don't write enough is part of the problem. I don't write enough these days that I can say that I have a clear writer's voice anymore, except you know, when I, when I do write something, it's, it's really hyper in my voice, which makes it feel a little unnatural, but it's, you know, it's always, what, whatever I write now, it's always comedic, right? I don't write, 
I'm not writing um, grant applications or something. So we've reached the point in the show where you would usually hear our American National Anthem and the show would be over. But today we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to let all of you guys hear the bonus content for free right now. To give you a good idea of the kinds of things that we sometimes discuss, this is a pretty good example. So enjoy the extra bonus content today for all of y'all that don't normally pay for it. And for those of you who do, thank you very much. And for those of you who enjoy it and would like to get this content on a regular basis, please consider donating to the show. You'll get access to the bonus content. You'll get access to a version of the episode that has no sponsors in it. And you can do that all by going to patreon.com slash roadwork. Thanks to all of you who are doing it again. And if you're considering it, we sure could use your support. And here is the bonus content. What are you writing right now? write anything it's code do you not ever write um dan benjamin's thoughts no not not much anymore i'm just busy with with the code i haven't i haven't had a chance to really sit down and write i mean i write these stupid newsletters and updates and stuff but the notes and stuff that i've been writing are i'm being i'm saving the ones I did write, nothing that I'm writing right now, but I'm, I'm gearing up for a newsletter that I'm going to be doing. I've been talking about it. I've been gearing up for it for like uh, six months because it takes me a long time to like, I'll do a lot of research. I, this is a, a reaction to a life that was spent mostly with impulsive decisions and, um, you know, making, making decisions impulsively, not thinking things through agreeing to things that uh, would later come back to torment and haunt me. And, uh, and so now I'll spend a long time researching something, thinking about something, looking it up, trying it on. Like you talk about trying it on like a, like a jacket for a while and wearing it uh, before I really commit to doing something. But when I do it, I will see it through until forever until or until there's an an end huh which is not what i used to do at all i was constantly abandoning things i would start them i would get very excited about the beginning part of things oh wow that sounds awesome we should totally do that yes i'm in 100 percent in and then like i'd forget about it and then someone would come back and say well remember that thing we're, we're ready to start and like oh yeah i can't i don't know i'm not gonna i don't really think i could do that thing after all or i would start doing it and then i'd realize wow i kind of bit off more than i can chew and if i do this then i can't do these other 20 things that i committed to and so i'm gonna have to cancel like half of them and i i spent a long portion of my life doing that kind of thing and so now i take my time I plan, I think, almost to the point that it seems like procrastination, but it's not. It's deep contemplation. Hmm. And uh, and so that's kind of where I, I land now. So when when I'm talking about doing this newsletter, I want it to be great. I won't do it unless it's great. I'm I'm slowly researching all the different pieces that 
I would put together on the back end to make it work. And then, then I'll start writing again. But I mean, I've, I've been writing my whole life. I started writing when I was a kid, I got a degree in writing, so it's still there. But I, I find that the way that I write, writing is the one thing that I do that comes uh, naturally and effortlessly to me. And I also happen to know that it's the only thing that I'm really good at. Um, writing code, I'm uh, average. I'm fine. I may have good ideas, but if you were to compare my code to someone else's code, just say it's fine. It's good. But no one's reading it and being like, mind blown, right? Like, it's, it's fine. And I think I can do a pretty good show. But writing has always been the thing that I've been, like, it's fantastically good at, and it's very easy for me to do it. But I have to feel like I... I have to be in, enchanted by whatever the thing is that I'm writing about. So I've kind of been holding off on, on a newsletter until I really nail the, the thing that I want to do. I but think your I, newsletter is going to be great, though. Well, thank you. How do you, if you were going to write a nonfiction book, what would the nonfiction book be? A, hist- a story of your life, a story about you. Mm. You know, birth, birth to death. But how would you be able to to do the research and I'm doing and it right now? Discern fact from fiction, though. Oh, that's irrelevant. I mean, if 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 it's presented to me as truth and I believe it as truth, uh, then it's yeah. uh, then it's not fiction. There continues to be some confusion about whether or not uh, the stories I tell are one hundred percent true or whether they are one hundred and twenty percent true. <laughs> I think what matters is that you believe it. Like that story with the dog. To you that was real. To me, I know it wasn't real. I know it didn't even happen. I think there was no dog. Which story about the dog? That you were uh you were running around one night and you were you were high on something and a dog came and it spent the evening with you and at the end of the evening you just said goodbye and the dog just ran free off into a field and you claim that other people saw the dog, but none of those people are available to corroborate. That no, that dog was that was a hundred percent real dog. Exactly what I, exactly. Of course it was. Yeah. I believe you. And that's yes. why I will treat that as a factual story for the book. Good. Good. Well, then we have, we have a perfect understanding of, of, uh, if you believe it, it is true. If you will it, it is no dream. Hmm. Hmm. But no, if I was, I would love, I did not enjoy history when I was younger growing up. I didn't like it at all. And that changed for me in, in college. I had a really great history teacher and he provided so much background information, whether we were talking about you know, carpet baggers or, you know, the trenches in world war one, like it didn't matter. He was able to bring so much detail and backstory and, and humanization of the stories. And it, it changed my perspective on it. And ever since then, and even more, as I get older, I find I really truly enjoy reading about history and, and learning about the people more, the people uh, than than the actual things that happened, you know. I'm not as interested in um, how a specific battle was fought and how many casualties there were. I'm more interested in like the personal stories behind that or how people around it were affected, that type of thing. Yeah, uh, I don't think I'm qualified to write a book on that uh, because I, I don't know enough about it. And the things that interest me, I don't think anyone would buy a book about those things. Do you think that there's any autobiographical 
aspect of your life that would make an interesting book? None. No. No one would want to read that. But whether or not anyone would want to read it, is there anything, is there any kind of like through line, any sort of... Oh, yeah. I mean, there are tremendous ones. I, I could write a good book about that, but it would have to, I would have to wait for a lot of people to be gone because, it, you know, I, I know too much. Oh, it would be a tell-all. It would have to be. It would have I to be. It. And I can't, uh, I can't do that. You know, I could write, I would like to write a book on the UFOs, that would be fascinating for me because I've done a lot of a lot of research for thirty years about uh, alien abductions and UFOs and things like that. But there's enough crackpots out there ruining that space already and politicizing it that it, that it makes me not want to be a part of it anymore. How anyway. do you feel about the Tic Tac? I mean, I think that seems to be a lot of what people are seeing right now. I think that I don't know if if it would be interesting to kind of trace the different shapes of UFOs that people report seeing. The Tic Tac is one of the newer ones. Um, for a long time, in if you're going back to the 40s, 50s, and up really through the 60s, when UFO reporting didn't really exist in the same way, when it was when when you were immediately labeled as insane if you even claimed to see something like this, and when the military-industrial complex was in its early stages and didn't acknowledge or wouldn't acknowledge something like this. Uh, you saw flying saucers. That's why they called them flying saucers because they were saucer shaped, right? And then eventually you started to see other things for a while. There were they would say cigar shaped. Then, and of course, you have the um, the the infamous um, the triangular shaped uh, you know UFOs, which um, which people claim to see more and more often. Of course, that's a lot of people would claim that the TR3B, which is what the, the triangular shaped UFO is uh, called, is actually one of, quote unquote, one of ours in that we have appropriated advanced or alien technology and we're building those and a lot. And, and so there's this whole other sort of conspiracy theory within the UFO conspiracy theory of people saying that we're actually building UFOs and sending them out amongst the existing ufos so that if and when there is some kind of real alien invasion we can cover it up or vice versa mm. it's uh, all of these conspiracy i don't get intel i don't that's not my thing i don't no, care no, about no, that no. i'm not oh, interested good, good, in good. that i don't get into the conspiracy theory thing well we can talk about jfk another time because i've been doing a lot of research in that over the last uh few years oh good but uh and there's a really good series that I'm listening to. Um, it's a, it's a YouTube, uh, series by a guy who does this stuff, uh, for a living talking about, um, JFK. I think they're up to like six or seven episodes of this highly recommended. We'll put it in the show notes because man, there, there's still a lot to figure out there. There is still a lot to unpack in that space, but the UFOs, I'm more interested in what's really going on. I just want to know what's really going on. And the, so the Tic Tac shape, what I like about that. Uh, and, and what I like about the people reporting this is that it, it's an impossible object. It behaves in an impossible way. It comes to a complete stop. It accelerates to barely visible speeds almost instantaneously. It can turn at 90 degree angles. It can uh, increase or decrease its altitude almost instantaneously. And when it moves, it does so at 
random angles. It doesn't have a certain angle or relationship to the earth. In other words, a plane has to fly kind of flat unless it's performing some maneuver that it's pulling off. These don't have any such limitations. And when they're reported, they're, they're very exciting. They're seen at all kinds of altitudes. They're captured by uh, space station footage. They're captured by um, pilots seen all the time. Uh, so that's a very interesting one to me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the ones that people suspect that we are building, uh, they look very different. They don't behave that way. And I think that's because um, the ability that we have to understand this technology is in its infancy. And if, if we are in fact building these things and that we may have figured out the uh, the anti-gravity propulsion stuff, but we're not able to build full machines the way that whatever technology has built those is, has built them. Mm. Mm. So I want to know more. I think that we should start a whole separate show on, uh, on UFOs. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. I just, I feel like the space has been polluted and perverted because now somehow you can't, John, you can't look at the, any of this stuff without it being politicized, without it being connected to QAnon, which I don't care about at all. It's completely uninteresting to me. None of that stuff is interesting to me. I'm apolitical. I just, I follow it. I pay attention. I vote. But that's not something I want to like talk about. And mm-hmm. now, for whatever reason, UFOs and all of this stuff has been completely co-opted by that movement. And it's very difficult to talk about any of this stuff without it being like that. And there are a lot of people who have been talking about this for a long time now, especially on YouTube. And it just com- it's completely changed the face of it. And I don't, yeah. I don't want to throw in into that crowd because it's not interesting to me. It's not interesting to me. Uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm just not interested in it. It's tough because I really want to talk about it. And I know, I know that I would do, you know, I grew up listening to Art Bell and Coast to Coast AM and you did. Oh yeah. That was my bread and butter. That was my favorite. That was my favorite thing to, oh, to listen to. I loved that. I absolutely loved that. Um, but like you've got the the work that uh, David Jacobs is is doing, um, who ironically uh, was a professor at uh, Temple University, where my my dad worked for pretty much his whole career, and it's you know he was he worked with Bud Hopkins for a long time. He is one of these people that talks to people who claim to have had encounters or abduction experiences, and he's written lots of books on this topic, and. It, you know, there is definitely, there are people who are simply more focused on UFOs or like what's going on, what's happening in the sky, what are these objects? We have now the Navy admitting that there are things we don't know about in the sky. They they won't say they're from another planet or another dimension. They're just, they're not ours. And we don't think they're anyone else's either because the technology to do this stuff doesn't seem to make sense. That's kind of interesting, but there are people who focus just on the kind of the facts of like, here was a sighting. What tell us about that sighting. But then there are other people like David Jacobs who talk about the abduction experience, who try to chronicle that, who try to get information from people about that. But as you know, John, people are horrible, horrible 
uh, when it comes to remembering things accurately. And when yeah. I say people, I'm including myself in that. Uh, we're, you know, we, we all struggle to remember things accurately. We struggle to remember things accurately, even when we're paying close attention. And one of the only things that people in this space can rely on is what is essentially becomes an anecdotal story told by an, a, a so-called abductee. And if your memory of what you did first this morning when you woke up is kind of cloudy, did you get a drink of water first? Or did you brush your teeth first? Are you sure? Are you positive? Did you, what order did you turn the lights off last night in your kitchen and your dining room? Was it the dining room first or the kitchen first? Because those switches are right next to each other. It's hard to remember little details like that. And oftentimes in, if, if you're emotional, it's impossible to remember exactly what the details were. They've done so many tests and studies uh, where they've had, you know, someone come into a room of college kids. This is the famous one. I forget who, who conducted this, but there was a guy giving a lecture and uh, they had some guy run in and, and shout something or do something and run out of the room. And they said, what shirt was he wearing? What color shirt was he wearing? You had a hundred students. You probably had 50 different answers, you know? Oh. And that's because, especially in a, in a situation like that, our memories are unclear. We don't, we don't do a good job of remembering those kinds of details. So, if you're trying to get somebody to talk about an abduction experience, of course, it's a stressful experience. Of course, it's an emotional experience. Even if it's fully imagined, it's, there's a, I mean, I've had dreams where I've woken up from the dream and, and been like emotionally freaked out or devastated or whatever because of it, you know? And so as a result of that, you have these people who are, what are they doing? Of course, John, I know what you're thinking. They're, yeah, they're regressing these people through, uh, you know, using a basic kind of hypnotism. And then of course, right away, I know what you're thinking. You say hypnotic suggestion. So what Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs have done is they've tried to create this incredibly rigid protocol that they use when they're talking to people who are attempting to recount these experiences. And they ask questions and they ask them in a very specific kind of a way as to try to reduce that type of response uh, in someone where they, they do not want to unintentionally guide or instruct or inform an answer. And even so, it's hard. And even so, you're talking about people and people's memories, and it's so hard to know. But there is something going on. Even if the thing that's going on is there is some kind of medical condition that these people have that causes them to hallucinate the same way. Whatever it is, something's going on. Uh, and whether it's a medical condition, a mental state, or an actual abduction, we don't know, but something is going on. And these kinds of things, John, are fascinating to me. And if I was going to write a book, I would love to write something about this. But there's people who are know much more than me. And so I would feel like, well, why, why even bother? There's someone out there who's already writing a better book than the one that I'm writing. When I was in college, I, uh, I had a, an English class uh, that was one of my technical writing classes. And as an example of technical writing, the teacher was teaching the book uh, by Persig, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I'm not sure if we've talked about this one, John, or not, but fantastic book. And the, the overarching topic 
uh, is uh, a pursuit of quality or a discussion of quality. What does quality mean? And this is explored in depth in the book. And the teacher, Dr. Jones, was uh, had been spent five years writing a book about quality and Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And then he met some other dude. This is the early days of the internet, so you couldn't just Google something. And he met some other guy, and there was actually two guys who had spent 10 years together writing a book on this. And when he met them, he's like, well, I'm not going to bother then. Because they were five years past him, and there were two of them. And so I feel like any entry I would have in this space, you know, but what I could do is I could do a podcast about it. Because the podcasts that are out there about it are all done by people who are, who, who, they're, 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 cosplayers almost they're super fans they're people who believe everything i don't believe anything i don't believe anything i don't believe that there are ufos i don't believe that there aren't ufos i don't believe that there are or are not either or both in tandem to one another i have no belief at all about it i'm simply i want to know i want to i want to believe sure but I do not have an opinion either way, which makes me the perfect person to talk about it because I'm, I'm open-minded to both the fact that there are, and I'm, I'm like a Schrodinger's UFO in the sense that I neither believe nor do not believe until something happens. And this is the thing, like these people that say that they go up on the ship and everything else, they're not always, they report not, they're not in control of themselves. They can't like secretly sneak like an alien you know paper clip they can't you know put one between their their cheek and gum and and smuggle it out they're not able to do that generally speaking but the thing that's that's fascinating to me is if these are true how come we don't have out of the millions and millions of people who talk about this stuff we don't have one single reliable artifact Not one, ever. That makes it very hard for a lot of people to believe. Because you would think that in all of those times, there's one person who's going to be able to take something back. There's weird things. There's people who have weird scars, weird injuries, uh, people who claim to uh, wake up and they're in someone else's clothing. Because maybe they were doing something on a ship and they were just grabbed the wrong shirt. But you know what? That doesn't prove anything. Well, I would never owned a red polo, but now I'm wearing one. That doesn't prove anything. You're just in a red polo. That, that's all that proves. So there's so much in here that makes it. And, and still, even with all of the attention that this is getting now, whether it's in the mainstream media, uh, with the Space Force, or you know, with uh, with work that Tom DeLonge is doing, trying to shed light on this stuff, the admission from the the U.S. Navy about videos being legit and pilots seeing this all the time, it's still seen as fringe. It's still seen as kind of kooky, nutso, conspiracy theory stuff. And as interested as I am and have always been in this, I don't really want to throw in with that group, not because I'm worried about my reputation or something, but because like you open yourselves up to so much. I don't even know what the right word is. So much garbage that I just, I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm 
I have other things I want to do. So that's why I'm not writing a book right now. Tell me about Tom DeLong. Why is Tom DeLong? What is he doing? I keep hearing his name recently. Tom DeLong. Okay, so you you know him from uh, what is it? Blink uh, 182. That's right? right. That's his thing, and um, and he. I guess the band, you know, I don't know if they broke up or whatever, but he got really interested in UFOs and he wanted to uh, try to bring this into the more, more shed more light on all of this. And he wanted to get to the bottom of it or try to get people to treat it more seriously. And, uh, so what he did is he started like a, a, a basically like a UFO research firm and has, for whatever reason, managed to get a lot of buy-in from real scientists, from real news. And he is, for whatever reason, he is regarded it now as a uh, an authority in this space. And, and people seem willing to talk to him and go to him and discuss it with him and he's made some work, but now there are a lot of people who study this stuff who are saying that he is wittingly, or most of them will say unwittingly um, being essentially used as a mouthpiece for whatever secret agenda those who really know about what's going on behind the scenes he's basically become unwittingly their mouthpiece mm. and he is he is himself part of unwittingly part of a limited hangout and is actually sharing uh, uh, propaganda without even knowing that he's being used in this way, that the, any leaks that he's getting, any materials that he's being shown, anything like that is part of a bigger conspiracy to mislead us, the populace, through him. And that he they they seize the opportunity when he started doing this and uh, and are feeding him falsehoods. I don't know if that's true. I think any serious attention being given to this topic is uh, is worth it. And it's something that it's been there. It's been there for so long. Uh, and now I feel like if there, if we have an opportunity to learn more about it, we should. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a UFO out there in Alaska in those big open skies? Uh, well, yes. One time I saw a UFO. What was it? What was it like? The long winters were on tour and we used to pull over in the middle of the night and, um, take what we called star breaks Mm. when we were in the Western United States, you know, we often were traveling through parts of Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, where there was, uh, you know, there are some of the darkest places in America. And if we were driving through those places in the middle of the night, and I was behind the wheel, I mm-hmm. would pull off the road, go up a dirt road, you know, a couple of miles out into the middle of the desert and then wake everybody up and say, star break. And we would all get out and stand out in the desert and look up at the stars. And unfortunately, you know, I have bad vision. So I'm looking at them through my glasses. Right. It's never quite the same, but, but still, you know, phenomenal 
environments. And, and you can see that in Alaska too there. And that's kind of what inspired me because growing up in Alaska, if you get out of town, any distance, you can look up and see amazing things in the sky. But of course it's Alaska's very far North. So the sky looks different. And, um, and in these desert States, often you can see from horizon to horizon. So you've got a lot of sky to deal with. Mm-hmm. But we were on tour. We were in Las Vegas, and we were headed to L.A. because we'd been invited to play on the um, on the radio station. the The indie rock, cool radio station there had a uh, had a very cool television program or a very cool radio program called. Uh, was it's not the Young and the Restless, maybe. I forget. I forget exactly what it's called, uh, because we were never on it because we were invited to play it, and we headed to L.A. in order to play it, and then they called and canceled it at the last minute. And this was one of those things that every indie rock band has played this show, and we were extremely disappointed. Um, let me let me just. Let me just see if I can find it. Okay. Um, indie Rock Radio. Uh, but how far do I have to look before I see it? Um, well, I'm not finding it. So anyway, it doesn't matter. But... Uh, Anyway, we were in L.A., or I'm sorry, we were in, oh, it's KCRW is what it is, the radio station, and the show was hosted by, like, their famous DJ. Don't care anymore, anyway, because they canceled on us. So we're in Vegas, and I said, well, I don't want to just sit in Vegas for a day, and I don't want to go to L.A. a day early, so why don't we go to Death Valley? We've never been to Death Valley. There's no reason to go to Death Valley, but we're right here. We'll just turn around and drive up there and go through Death Valley. And the guys were like, eh, I'd rather go to LA, but okay, we've been through this enough with you. We'll go through Death Valley with you. So we drove up to that part of, you know, it's Death Valley is, it's very mountainous there. And in order to get to Death Valley, you have to go up over mountains. And then on the other side, you have to go up over mountains. And we went, over these mountains and down into death Valley, but it's an incredibly steep mountain range. We were a fully loaded van and we found this to be true over the years that when, when the van was fully loaded with gear and dudes, the brakes were pretty heavily taxed on steep mountain roads. And it was death Valley. So it was hot Anyway, by the time we got down to Death Valley, our brakes had overheated and had overheated to the point that they were glowing red, visibly red. Jeez. And we got down to Death Valley and we let the brakes cool off. And it was a, you know, that's, that's bad when your brakes are glowing red. We let them cool off. We, we spent a little time down there kind of marveling at it. It is an extraordinary place, a place I'd like to go again. But we, you know, we, 
we were meant to be in LA the next day, so we couldn't like stay forever. We got in the in the van and the brakes had cooled down enough, I guess. And we drove up and now the sun was going down. We drove up the the ridge on the other side and it took us way, way high up again. And then at the crest of that, we realized that we had to go down an entire other mountain. You know, we had to go now down mm-hmm. um, thousands of feet to the desert floor. And the brakes had cooled, but they hadn't like cooled overnight or anything. We'd let them cool down for an hour or two, but they we knew they were still screwed. Well, we started down this hill and I was trying to use the brakes as sparingly as I could, but it wasn't long before they heated up again. And now it was dark. And they heated up so much that, you know, we could tell from inside the van that they were red hot. And we and they were failing. And so we pulled over to the side of the road and we had a we had some water in the truck and we threw the water on the brakes and you know just steam everywhere and realized that of course throwing water on the brakes who knows what that's going to do to the whole thing warp it and and um but you know they were they were glowing so hot though we were afraid they were going to melt some important equipment and then we would be stranded and so then we're standing there next to this steaming wreck of our van everything turned off Mm -hmm. just kind of wondering like how long we should wait here in the dark before getting on the road again and you know we start to do what we do during a star break which is just kind of wander off each of us you know wandering 50 feet in in some direction into the desert and you know we're always conscious of snakes and spiders and werewolves and stuff but it's always the middle of the night right out kicking around and i'm wandering down the road and i'm looking up at uh at the ridge line of a mountain range that's off kind of to the north of us and there's a you know there's a power line there mm-hmm. so there's you know there's a tall power line architecture architecture a a structure a a tower with red lights on it Mm -hmm. widely spaced kind of where the you know it's a major power line and otherwise you know completely dark desert floor and we're all kind of looking around looking around kind of some of us are looking at the ground in the moonlight some of us are looking up at the stars and then i don't remember who it was but somebody said, look at that. And we turned and realized that there wasn't a power line. What? And that That's crazy. This giant tower that had, you know, far spaced red lights on it where the where the power cables would go to keep it from getting hit by airplanes was actually moving and we all stood there and watched as it very slowly moved and kind of was like rotating you know just like moving as did though you get, did you get a sense for this the size massive yeah 
and we watched it move behind the mountain. And so by the time, because I, I had noted it as a power line and then looked elsewhere. So by the time someone said, what is happening over there? And we all <laughs> turned our attention to it. We were watching it as it moved behind the mountain. So we saw, because when I had noted it as a power line, it was on the mountain, right? It, it was, it was something that was on the mountain already. So to see it then move behind the mountain, I'd looked away. So we only saw it. We only recognized it as something for 15 seconds before it was gone. And then it was gone and we were all alone in the dark and there were no red lights or lights of any kind. And so we immediately started talking about it. Like, what did you see? Like comparing stories. And in the 15 seconds that the four of us had looked at it, all four of us had a completely different description of what we'd seen. And my description of it as like a giant tower of power lines that had come to life and had, when was moving across the sky right. was not at all what any of the other dudes saw. And they each described a, you know, a thing in the sky. They described it as having different colored lights than I saw that it was shaped differently than I saw. It mo was moving differently than I saw. And we stood there and we're just in, it had just happened within a minute. We were in complete disagreement about what we'd seen. And we all got back in the truck and just sort of stared out the windows, trying to make sense of how we could have seen such a, we, you know, because we only really collectively looked at it. And I was, and I said to them like, well, I saw it. I just didn't realize it was moving. You know, I saw it. I thought it was this, I thought it was a tower. And they were like, it wasn't a tower at all. It was a <laughs> rhombus or it was a perfect circle or whatever. There you go. Anyway, we got back in the truck and realized that the brakes were, were gone, cashed. They didn't, uh, they were, they were completely burned up. And so we put the truck in gear you know, started the motor and started down the hill. And because we were in complete desert, we could see forever. And I took us all the way down that mountain without touching the brakes. And it got scary. Yeah. We were going pretty fast and the road was <laughs> doing its thing. But, you know, it was a road that was meant to be, um, it was a big, wide, curvy road built by the, probably by the uh, Corps of Engineers. We drove all the way down through the mountains and then through the desert on the California side, never touching the brakes. And I'd done this a couple of times in the course of, you know, all the years of being on tour where I was like, I wonder how far I can go before I have to touch the brakes. So it was a thing I'd practiced. Uh, of course. <laughs> but, um, but did it and managed to get all the way to 
Ridgecrest, California, or was it was it Ridgecrest? I think it was. We we made it to a town where there was a there was a, a hotel, there was a an auto a repair place, there was a restaurant. You know, we got to and everything was closed, but we checked into the motel and in the morning we got out you know, took the van three doors down to the Ford dealer, went to the diner and had pancakes. And by mid-morning, the Ford dealer had replaced all of the brakes nice. at great expense. Yeah, of course. And we made it to LA in time for the show at Spaceland that night. So it all worked out. But we really, really, I still think about that UFO and and how clearly I would have described it to a researcher. Right. And then Eric Corson and Nabil Ayers would, you know, if the interview had interviewed them the next day, they would have said like, no, it had white lights and it was shaped like a banana and it exactly. made a whooshing sound. All right. That's it though. Uh, so John, stay well and we'll, uh, we'll talk again next week. You too, Dan. All right. Be good. Bye. Bye.